Welcome back to everybody's favorite movie-based podcast where we eat stale popcorn and drink watered-down sodas. This is An Evening at the Movies, and I am your incredibly excited and gracious host, Casey. And the reason for my excitement happens to be the fact that this is the main event of Stephen King Birthday Bonanza Month. This is the man of the month's birthday. Today, we are dropping this episode as well as sometime later today, we will be dropping another episode. But this is the first episode that will be dropped on, like I said, the man of the month's birthday. So, with that said, I have but only one thing that needs to be done. And forgive me for doing this, and I hope to God it doesn't annoy or offend anybody because I'm not that freaking talented, but I would just like to say, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Uncle Stevie. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to my all-time favorite author who never, ever will ever be surpassed by anyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing me all the hours and months and years of literary enjoyment that you have given me over the decades um i have nothing but mad love and respect for you and your talent and also as well i have absolutely no delusional visions of you actually listening to this episode but on the pure off chance that you would be yes even if you're not it doesn't matter we at an evening at the movies would like to tell you happy 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 birthday and you have our most heartfelt and most sincere thank thank yous and appreciation for everything that you have done for us over the decades as fans so yes Happy birthday. And with that said, this is the surprise episode of the week that I have talked about a couple of times on the social media platforms. So we're going to get right after it. And if you couldn't tell by the opening intro music to the episode, This episode is going to be dedicated not to the current remake that was released by uh, CBS slash Paramount Plus, whatever you want to call it, 
we are going to discuss the 1994 American television post-apocalyptic horror miniseries based on the 1978 novel of the same name by Stephen King, The Stand. So, no reason at all to beat around the bush here, guys. Let's get after it. The Stand was released on ABC, and the release dates slash airing dates of the miniseries was May 8th through May 12th, 1994. It was distributed by CBS Television, but aired on ABC, go figure. And it was directed by Mick Garris, who many of you will know is developed quite the <clears throat> history in the horror genre, as well as he's directed not just this miniseries, but as well um, the Shining remake in 1997, as well as the Desperation movie that was also released on TNT, I believe. Don't quote me on that one. But, yes. And with it being a television miniseries, I don't have the obvious box office numbers because there really is no box office. But the movie was made with a $28 million budget. And here in just a second, you're going to learn why it had a $28 million budget. Because as we get into the cast of the movie, it's not huge names per se, but there are some recognizable names as well as recognizable faces as well. So, um, starring in the movie is Gary Sinise as Stu Redman, Molly Ringwald as Franny Goldsmith, Jamie Sheridan as Randall Flagg, Laura Sangiacomo as Nadine Cross, Ruby D is Mother Abigail, Ozzie Davis is Judge Ferris, Miguel Ferrer is Lloyd Henry, Cornemic as Harold Lauder, Matt Frewer as Trash Can Man, Adam Stork as Larry Underwood, Ray Walston as Glenn Bateman, Rob Lowe as Nick Andros, Bill Fagerbake as Tom M-O-O-N Cullen, uh, Peter Van Norden as Ralph Brentner, uh, Bridget Ryan as Lucy Swan, um, Shawnee Smith as Julie Laurie, Cynthia Garris as Susan Stern. If that name sounds familiar, that's because that would be the wife of the director, Mick Garris. So that little fun fact right there. Uh, Stephen King had a brief cameo in the movie as well as as um, Teddy. Uh, John Landis has a cameo. In the movie as Russ Dorr. Sam Raimi has a cameo as Bobby. Kathy Bates as well has a 
This is her second of three appearances and first of her two appearances this weekend on An Evening at the Movies. But Kathy Bates has an uncredited role as Ray Flowers. Uh, Ed Harris, uncredited as General Bill Starkey. And I do believe for the most part, I'm, it's an incredibly long cast list and I'm not going to bore you all to death with reading every name, but I wanted to make sure I got the significant names out of the way. So yeah, I mean, there's some pretty significant names in involved with this miniseries and i think for the most part i will say that pretty much everybody nailed it but we'll get more into that as we get to the reviews after we get into the plot of the movie so strap yourself in guys this one's going to be a fairly long discussion from here, but as we go, on June 13th at a top-secret government laboratory in rural California, a weaponized version of influenza called Project Blue is accidentally released. A U.S. Army soldier, Charles Campion, escapes the lab and flees across the country with his wife and daughter, unintentionally spreading the virus. On June 17th, Campion crashes his car into a gas station in Arnett, Texas, where Stu Redman and some friends are gathered. With his wife and child already dead from the superflu, Campion warns Redman that he has been pursued by a dark man since they left the lab before he succumbs to the virus as well. The next day, the U.S. military arrives to quarantine the town on orders from General Starkey, commander of the Project Blue. The townspeople are taken to a CDC facility in Stovington, Vermont. All but Stu succumb to the superflu called Captain Trips. Captain Trips by the populace, which kills 99.4% of the world's population in two weeks. General Starkey commits suicide, and is it is implied that the rest of his team are killed by the superflu. The scattered survivors include would-be rock star Larry Underwood, deaf-mute Nick Andros, Franny Goldsmith, and her unborn child, her teenage neighbor Harold Lauder, imprisoned criminal Lloyd Henry, the trash can man, a mentally ill arsonist, and scavenger. The survivors begin having visions either from kindly Mother Abigail or from the demonic dark man, Randall Flagg. The dreams counsel the survivors to either travel to Nebraska to meet Abigail or to Las Vegas to join up with Flagg. Lloyd is freed from prison by flag in an exchange for becoming his second in command. Trashcan Man destroys fuel tanks across the Midwest and is directed to Las Vegas. Larry escapes New York with a mysterious woman named Nadine Cross. 
Despite their mutual attraction, Nadine is unable to consummate a relationship with Larry because of her visions of Flag, who commands her to join him. She leaves Larry to travel on her own. Larry then meets a young school teacher named Lucy and a traumatized boy she calls Joe outside Des Moines, Iowa, which has been burned to the ground most likely by Trash Can Man, who is seen blowing up a petroleum refinery. After escaping the CDC facility, Stu gathers a group of survivors, including Franny, Harold, and former college professor Glenn Bateman. They are joined by various other immune survivors along the way. Harold is consumed with jealousy over Stu's leadership of the group and his growing and his growing relationship with Franny, on whom Harold has an unrequited crush on and has for a very long time. Nick barely escapes an attempt on his life in Shoho, Arkansas, by the bigoted town bully and makes his way across the Mid-South. Nick ends up in May, Oklahoma, where he meets Tom Cullen, a large mentally challenged man who spells every meaningful word he utters as M-O-O-N. The two men travel into Kansas and encounter Julie Lowry, a vicious girl who vows to kill them when they refuse to let her join them. Nick and Tom then meet kindly farmer Ralph Brentner and the three head west together in Ralph's pickup truck. Nick's group reaches Abigail's farm in Hemingford Home, Nebraska. She warns that a great, cl- great conflict is imminent and they must travel to Boulder, Colorado. The, su- the survivors form a community called the Boulder Free Zone and begin restoring civilization. Flag sets up a brutal autocratic regime in Las Vegas with the intent of defeating the Boulder survivors using savage nuclear weapons, which he sends trash can man out to find. Harold's resentment towards Stu and Franny intensifies, causing him to be seduced by Nadine and join forces with Flag. Abigail, convinced that she has fallen into the sin of pride, leaves Boulder to walk in the wilderness in an act of atonement. Three Boulder survivors are chosen by the Free Zone Committee to infiltrate Las Vegas as spies. Tom, Dana, Jurgens, and Judge Ferris. Glenn hypnotizes Tom to follow a specific set of instructions, including that he leave Las Vegas at the next full moon. Harold and Nadine plant a bomb in Franny and Stu's home using demolition dynamite, planning to set it to set it off during a meeting of the Free Zone Committee. A weakened Abigail returns to town and gives a psychic warning to the council members. The warning allows most of the council to escape the explosion, but Nick and a few others are killed. Before she passes away, Abigail tells Stu, Larry, Glenn, Ralph, and Franny that the men must travel by foot to Las Vegas to confront Flag. When Nadine and Harold flee Boulder, Flag causes Harold to be crippled in a motorcycle accident. Nadine leaves him in a ravine and he kills himself with a gun the next day. Once Nadine reaches the desert, Flag calls her to him. She realizes that she has made a terrible mistake and tries to escape, but Flag forces himself on her, revealing his true demonic form. Nadine is catatonic following 
the sexual attack by Flag, and her hair has turned white. Flag's men intercept Judge Ferris, who is accidentally killed by one of his henchmen, Bobby, before he can be tortured. Uh, Flag tears Bobby to pieces for not following instructions. Upon returning to Las Vegas, Flag has Dana brought to him. She plans to torture. He plans to torture her for information about the identity of the third spy. Flag could see Judge Ferris and Dana with his powers, but whenever he tries to see the third spy, all he could see was the moon. Hmm. Clues abound. But yes. So, after a failed attempt to kill Flag, Dana kills herself before she can extract before he can extract any useful information from her. Tom leaves Las Vegas when the moon is full, but Julie Lowry recognizes him. She tries to alert Flag, but Tom escapes into the desert and hides from Flag and his men. A crazed Nadine taunts Flag, and she commits suicide by jumping off the hotel balcony with the baby he conceived in her. With winter approaching, Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph Lee Boulder to set out on their quest. Stu breaks his leg when he falls in a dry riverbed and must be left behind with Glenn's dog, Kojak. The remaining three are captured by Flag's forces a few days later, and Glenn is separated from Larry and Ralph. Flag orders Lloyd to kill Glenn after he taunts Flag, as Larry and Ralph endure a... A show trial on Fremont Street. Flag uses his powers to silence a dissenter, striking him with a ball of plasma energy emitted from his fingers. Trashcan Man arrives, towing a stolen nuclear weapon with an ATV and showing signs of radiation poisoning. So Flag orders Lloyd to kill him. Flag is unable to stop the energy ball from transforming into a spectral hand, the hand of God, and it detonates the nuclear bomb as the voice of Mother Abigail declares that God's promise has been kept, and she welcomes Larry and Ralph into heaven. Las Vegas is destroyed by the nuclear blast, and Flag is apparently killed along with all of his followers. That point is technically open for debate, as at the moment of explosion, Flag transforms back into his mysterious black crow figure and flies off and you're left to wonder whether the crow actually got crow raven whatever you want to call it got away from the blast in time or whether the uh explosion consumed the bird so meanwhile back on the road back to boulder Stu is rescued by tom and they witness the nuclear explosion together Tom takes Stu to a nearby cabin to set his leg as winter arrives, but Stu has contracted the flu. In a dream, Nick comes to Tom and tells him which medicine to give him. Stu recovers from the infection, and the two of them return to Boulder in a snowstorm via a snowcat. Stu finds that Franny has given birth to a daughter, whom she has named Abigail. The baby has contracted the super flu, but she is able to fight off the virus. Lucy reveals that she is pregnant with Larry's child, and Joe sees a spectral image of Mother Abigail as she blesses the newborn baby. 
Assured that the immune survivors can safely reproduce, the inhabitants of Boulder set to work rebuilding the world. Thus is the end of the four-part miniseries. So, yeah. As far as my opinion of the series slash movie slash whatever you want to call it goes, um, the movie really gets mixed reviews as it can fall into the category of adaptations that take liberties and don't necessarily follow the book word for word. Um, and it isn't necessarily that they don't follow the book word for word. It's the fact that a lot of stuff gets left out. But you also have to consider at the time, this is 1994, and um, federal regulations as to what could be shown on TV were a lot more, well, strict. Um, and it wasn't necessarily what could be shown on, it's the fact that it was shown on free TV where anybody had access where if you had HBO, Showtime, Cinemax, blah, 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 you actually had some control over what you could and could not watch where on basic cable, everything was literally handed to you on a silver platter. And even at this time, you still could have um, antenna ears attached to your TV and pick up um, UHF signals for your main ABC, NBC, CBS, and I believe even Fox. So, but all that aside, personally, I'm of the opinion I enjoy the movie, the miniseries, whatever you want to call it. Um, there is certain aspects of this miniseries that I don't particularly care for. One being the fact that I'm not a huge fan of Molly Ringwald's performance in this movie. Uh, I get the fact that the character of Franny is what it is. I th think for the most part, Molly Ringwald kind of went f further with some of the character traits of Franny and that kind of ruined it for me in a sense. Um, mostly for the most part. I mean, to me, I loved Gary Sinise as Stu. I think he delivered an amazing performance and I legitimately pretty much anything that Gary Sinise does. I mean, Gary Sinise to me is almost not necessarily as huge as his Forrest Gump co-star, Tom Hanks, but he, he, I mean, he's awesome in the stand. He's awesome in Forrest Gump. He's awesome in Apollo 13. I mean, there isn't really a whole lot that Gary Sinise has done that I haven't, completely enjoyed 
So there is that. And then, I mean, as well, the rest of the cast, for the most part, I mean, even like, I'm not a huge Rob Lowe fan, never have been, probably never will be, but I enjoyed his interpretation of Nick Andros. So there's that too. Um, Bill Fagerbake as um, Tom Collin. I, yeah, I really enjoyed that performance as well. So, um, yeah, honest to God, if you guys have not seen this movie, miniseries, again, whatever you want to call it, um, I highly recommend you check it out. Obviously, it's, uh, what, hour and a half, three hours, six hour DVD, Blu-ray, whatever. I mean, however you watch it, it's approximately six hours long, an hour and a half per part, and there's four parts to the story. But I highly recommend checking it out. I mean, even some people will argue the fact that um, it kind of, in some ways, shapes or form kind of parallel some of the aspects of some of the things going on currently in our current social environment. I won't go too far into that and that may be a loose interpretation, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, yeah. So I love this movie. I love the cast. Um, I think Mick Garris did, the best job he could do with the material he was given. Again, obviously you can't take everything from, and there's some stuff in the book and you also have to factor into the book is a 1500 page however many pages i mean it's it's a long book you're not going to literally even if you have unlimited freedom by the fcc you're not going to get every aspect of the book into one you would almost have to do something equivalent to what uh cbs did with the remake that came out last December. So with that said, um, yeah, my rating for the movie, um, I will probably go, uh, three out of five. Yeah. Three out of flag or three out of five. super flus as to what, how I feel. About, I mean, and I think three out of five is a good jumping off point for, uh, I'm, I wouldn't put it as 
you know, in the greatness of what a four out of five movie would be. And, and obviously if it's not in that category, then it really truly isn't worthy of a five out of five either as well. So, so yes. So that is the first episode of this week's uh, Stephen King birthday bonanza. So before we wrap this episode up, um, I just want to do two things really, really quick. And that would be the fact that I'm going to post a discussion thread on the Facebook group page. And um, it's a question I literally right before I recorded, started recording this episode, I was on the SIP list with Amanda and Kevin, and we were discussing our top five favorite King adaptations of all time. And um, for those of you that know Stephen King's work and have read a lot of his stuff, I'm actually kind of curious for the most part. Um, if there's anything that you know of right off the top of your head that has not been turned into an adaptation that you would like to see turned into an adaptation. Um, I'm sitting here looking at my bookshelf as we speak and it's not my complete library bookshelf. So, um, yeah. So I'm trying to do this by memory as well. But, um, so yeah, the question would be for the discussion, um, which unadapted King work would you as a fan like to see get a movie adaptation? And for me, I will go ahead and say right now that probably there's three that I can think of right off the top of my head. And one of these you're going to kind of be confused about, but it's also one of the off the wall answers that I gave when Amanda posed this question on the SIP list. But um, we're going to go with unadapted that I would like to see adapted. Well, no, we're going to go with four. Four options. Here they are. Number four being the off the wall one. So we're going to go with. Um, yes, technically it did get a movie and technically that movie is on the band list on this podcast. So we will leave that movie right there where it belongs. But, um, I truthfully would like to see somebody get a hold of and create a proper 
working script to begin an adaptation, a quality adaptation of the Dark Tower series. Not that freaking 2000 and what's whatever the hell year that movie came out. Uh, no, 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 no. Leave it alone. Um, yeah. So, in my opinion, that saga has not yet been adapted. So, we're going to classify that one too as something that is eligible. Um, uh, after that, uh, let's see. Number three would be The Eyes of the Dragon. Um, that's an interesting story as well. Kind of, sort of, Dark Tower-esque. If you want to go down that road, yeah. I Again, I enjoyed the book, but yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, number two would be... Well, we'll just go this way. Um, number one and number two actually are a original, well, part one and part two of a two-part sequel. And number two would be Black House, which is the sequel to the original book, The Talisman. I would actually like to see both of those adapted to the screen as well. So... Now that that is out of the way, um, yeah, I will post a thread if you guys want to chime in with your thoughts as well, or if there's something that you feel that is worthy of getting an adaptation. Um, I'm actually curious to see what your guys' favorites are that you would like to see as well. Um, other than that, the other thing I was going to announce as well and it goes along with the fact that if you listen to the misery episode of Stephen King birthday bonanza month, you know that Amanda and myself brought up the fact that on a previous episode of the sip list, I was shamelessly very, very shamelessly name dropping, uh, references to an evening at the movies left and right like 14 times I think in the episode and so for our trivia contest this month I'm going to go ahead and pose the question now and then I will post the question as well in the Facebook group and people can chime in with their answers to the question and the person who comes up with the exact correct answer will be rewarded with the option of picking between a DVD or Blu-ray copy of this very miniseries, The Stand. So, here is the question for all of you wanting it now. 
and I will post it again, like I said, on the Facebook group as well. So, in the misery episode of Stephen King Birthday Bonanza Month, Amanda was on as co-host, and to combat the fact that I shamelessly was name-dropping an evening at the movies on her podcast, she um, got revenge on me by name dropping the sip list on an evening on that episode of an evening at the movies. So we both got involved hook, line and sinker into a battle of name dropping her episode or her podcast as much as we can. With that said, the answer to the question or the question is in the misery episode how many times do Amanda and I shamelessly name drop the sip list in that episode from start to finish? I will post the question, like I said, on the Facebook group, and we will accept answers up until... Well, let's see. Tomorrow is the 19th. Um, correct. Answers can be posted all the way up till um, October 27th. And then when I record the quote unquote bridge episode of this month that will bridge the gap between this month's events and next month's theme. I will announce the winner of the contest and that person will then get to choose whether they want a DVD or a Blu-ray copy of the stand. I have extra copies of both and we will go from there. So that's this month's trivia contest as well be on the lookout as well and we are currently accepting offers to um as well amanda and myself well i have extended the offer to amanda to accept my challenge to come on an evening at the movies and do epic battle with me of wits as we combat over who knows a nightmare on Elm street better i personally think it is yours truly but we will see how that event plays out as well because we all know how yours truly has done with trivia against the queen the last two times but um yes so as well be looking forward to that coming up um other than that, uh, second episode this week is Dolores Claiborne. I will have that, I swear, 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 before I put head to pillow tomorrow night, that episode will be recorded and dropped. So you guys can have that one as well. Um, next week we will be...
talking. Oh, yeah. Thinner and Cujo. So those are the next two movies coming up for that, as well as um, you have the mysterious bridge between Stephen King month and Halloween Horror Fest. So I'm going to keep that one a secret for now, and we will revisit that one after I get these next three episodes recorded and dropped as well. So again, thank you guys for coming back and listening to me ramble on and discuss my love for movies in every shape and form, whether it is cinematic, television movies, miniseries, whatever the case may be, streaming movies. I don't care. I love movies and I'm glad that you guys keep coming back and listening and hopefully you guys keep coming back because as long as you guys keep coming back, I will keep producing episodes left and right as much as I can. I enjoy this and I enjoy having you guys coming back and listening. So thank you guys ever so much for coming back and I hope you all will be back later today for an evening at the movies. Have a good Sunday, guys. Bye.